Hey, if I haven't uh, met you yet, my name is Jordan Droge, and I'm one of the folks that serves on the preaching team here at Missio Day Church. And um, uh, the beginning of this month was April 1st, obviously, and on April 1st is uh, April Fool's Day. And um, I'm kind of known for uh, playing some good, like, April Fool's jokes. Uh, and this year, I took it to a whole new level. And when I say I took it to a whole new level, it wasn't necessarily like a good level, but I took it there. Um, now, before I share with you my April Fool's joke, I just want you to know, I do love Jesus, okay? Um, I think through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to follow and love Jesus. Um, but just know that before I share this, okay? So April 1st comes that morning, and um, I haven't had coffee yet. It's early, so bad decisions are made during this time period, okay? And I see our dog, Kiwi, who's kind of sitting on the couch, and she's looking a little sad. And so I thought, <laughs> I had this genius idea. What if I took a picture of Kiwi and posted on social media like, hey, we lost Kiwi. We can't find her. If you've seen her, will you please, will you please help us find her, okay? So I posted that on social media, and um, there was um, a lot of commotion on my <laughs> social media accounts that morning. People were texting me, oh my gosh, have you found Kiwi yet? Um, so one of my neighbors sent me like this direct message with like a link to like the animal rescue, and like I'll call them, I'll help you. Um, I've like some, some people like reshared it. Some of you in this room reshared it, and were like, hey, we'll help you find Kiwi. We'll drive around, all that sort of stuff. So Emily was screenshotting texts that she was receiving throughout the day saying, I hate you. Look at what you've done. Um, and so mid-morning, um, I decided to take that post down. So um, anyways, th th yeah, thank you. Thank you. So there's three things I learned um, through that experience. Number one, don't do that. Um, number two, um, what was the second thing I learned? I can't remember. But the third, th oh no, the second thing I learned is that if, if Kiwi, if we actually do lose Kiwi, we're screwed. Like, there's no way, if Kiwi runs away, people will be like, <laughs> I'm not falling for that again. Good luck. Um, and the third thing I learned is that <laughs> we have a lot of people that love and care for us and will want to help and rescue Kiwi. So um, all, of, all of some of you in this room and uh, all of our other friends were, were eager to help rescue Kiwi. And the theme of rescue uh, comes up in our text this morning. Um, and this is our 14th week in our Life of Christ series through the book of Matthew. Uh, and today is uh, what uh, called Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday has been celebrated for thousands of years throughout church history to kind of mark the beginning of Holy Week. And Holy Week is the, the week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. So if you have a Bible text near you or a device, um, open up to Matthew 21. Uh, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to look at. So Matthew 21. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And here's what it says. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone, uh, if anyone says anything to you, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken to the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. 
They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the, on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of, ahead of him uh, and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. So this scene contains uh, many messianic elements. Uh, The word messianic related, obviously, to the word Messiah, which is a Jewish title. Uh, and, and, this Jew, uh, and the Jewish people had this understanding that the Messiah was uh, sent by God, uh, was a figure to be sent by God to unite all of God's people, liberate them, and restore the temple. So a first century Jew who has experienced the scene we just read for the first time would more than likely start to think to himself, I hear the sounds, I see the signs. Could this one indeed be the long-awaited Messiah? Is this the long-awaited moment is this long-awaited moment finally now upon us? Will we soon be rescued? Now, it's not exactly the same, but it, it would be similar to today if we saw streets being barricaded off, uh, people on either side of the streets, a motorcade of police on motorcycles coming down the street with lights flashing, and then suddenly the music of Hail to the Chief begins to play. We would look at all those preparations, see the signs, hear the sounds, and we would instantly know who was coming, and that whatever was about to happen was probably significant. So it was with this entry by Jesus into Jerusalem. So this passage has all of the royal and messianic overtones that people at the time would have expected. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of everything for the Jewish people. It was where the temple was located. There's people laying down cloaks on the ground as he goes by and shouts of of Hosanna. uh, Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David is a messianic title. So a lot of the expected messianic signs are present in this text. And yet there also is the presence of very different and unexpected signs. Most notably, that this Messiah did not enter into Jerusalem on a large horse with an entire uh, entourage that exuded an aura of power in the marking of the beginning of the Jewish liberation. This Messiah entered on a lowly donkey. In fact, not, not only was he on a donkey, he was riding on a borrowed donkey. So the people lining the streets who were longing for rescue... Could they really trust that a Messiah riding in on a lowly borrowed donkey could be the one to fulfill the long-awaited hopes and expectations? Jesus did not exude the power and might that was undoubtedly expected because he was the living, breathing, moving tabernacle. He was the word become flesh. This was Emmanuel, God with us, who was born in a feeding trough for animals. Perhaps we should have expected this kind of entry. If there was humility and lowliness in his birth, so too it would be with his entry into Jerusalem and ultimately to his soon-to-come death on a cross. This Messiah did not place himself above his people. He was on the same level with his people. 
He was with his people in this unexpected way because this was the beginning of him rescuing his people and all of creation. So we, we celebrate Palm Sunday as part of the larger church calendar. And one of the many gifts of the church calendar, and indeed Lent, is that although we have the privilege of being located in history in such a way that we know the full story, so to speak, the invitation of the church calendar is to enter into a previous space and time and put ourselves in the shoes of those who have come before us. So, for example, during Advent, although we have the gift of hindsight and know the full scope of the story— we can place ourselves backwards in the story and ask things like, after all of this waiting by Israel for the Messiah to come, how might that have felt? How did they pray? How did they maintain hope? Or what did they do when they gave up hope? Or during Lent, although we know that Jesus will die and rise again, we are invited to place ourselves backwards in the story and to ask questions like, what must have it been like for the disciples as Jesus entered Jerusalem? What was the feeling in the upper room during the Last Supper? How did Peter feel when he realized that he betrayed Jesus and that Jesus foretold this happening? Or even more powerfully, what did it feel like after Jesus died? In that in-between time of the crucifixion and resurrection, was there absolute hopelessness? Th these are the sorts of gifts we can experience when we respond to the invitation to go back in the story and place ourselves in a different time and space. And I want to take that kind of a journey together this morning. I want to place ourselves as one of the many in the crowd who were lining the streets shouting, Hosanna! Now, Hosanna, that's a word that you might have heard in a church context, <clears throat> or perhaps you've heard it in a song. But what, what does that word mean? <clears throat> it literally means, save us. Now, obviously, in this context of our passage, that word being shouted by the people had a very specific meaning, right? They thought that Jesus was the Messiah coming to rescue them. So that's why they're shouting, save us. But the reason that I want to place us here in the story is that uh, amongst this group of people who are shouting Hosanna, is because I don't think that this is just a cry of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. I think this is the cry of the entire human race. We are a people who long to be rescued. The good news is that Jesus is the one who has rescued is rescuing, and will continue to rescue us. Our longing and cry of save us will find its yes in Jesus. But more often than not, it will look like the saving or the rescue that we did not envision for ourselves. And so was the case for the people who crowded these streets en route to Jerusalem, who were shouting Hosanna. They had a particular idea present in their minds of what exactly this saving was supposed to look like. Listen to this quote from N.T. Wright. They wanted a Messiah, but this one was going to be enthroned on a pagan cross. They wanted to be rescued from evil and oppression, but Jesus was going to rescue them from evil in its full depths, not just the surface level evil of Roman occupation and exploitation by the rich. Precisely because Jesus says yes to their desires at the deepest level, he will have to say no or wait 
to the desires they are conscious of and express. Once you invite Jesus to help, he will do so more thoroughly than you imagined, more deeply than perhaps you wanted. The cry of the human heart is indeed, save, it, save me. We want to be rescued, even when we're not quite sure what it is we need to be rescued from. But Jesus is not just rescuing us from something. He's rescuing us for something. We are not rescued from sin so that we can go to heaven when we die. We are rescued for life and life to the full because Jesus Christ is life. So the road that leads to our longing to be saved, being ultimately met in Jesus, is a long and windy one that oftentimes feels completely uphill. And yet when we travel this road, we know deep in our bones that this is not just some religious road, but this is the road that we were made to travel. Traveling this road is what it means to be truly and fully human. It's a road of freedom. If the cry of the human heart is indeed, save me, that in many, many ways, our lives are a journey of trying to satisfy that deep longing. And I'd like to consider three major ways that I think that that journey of being rescued can be derailed. Here's the first way. When we believe the lie that we actually don't need to be saved at all. I think that this is perhaps the hardest of the three that I'll mention for us post-enlightenment modern Americans who today have access to more amounts of information at a rate that's faster than any other people in human history. We have access to everything that we could need. And as a result, we believe that not only, uh, not only can we control most things in life, but we should be able to control most things in life. When we have such control, why would we need someone to rescue us? We can rescue ourselves. Especially here in independent New England, where we don't rely on anyone for anything. We don't want to in inconvenience anybody else. We are good, self-sufficient people. But the reality is that in our modern world, most of the time, it takes great loss and pain and suffering for us to come to the end of ourselves and realize that, yes, even us in our modern world need someone outside of ourselves to save us. Coming to this realization is particularly harder for men, fellas, sorry to out it, but, but it is, especially for, for young men, because recognizing that you have a need to be saved is, a si is seen as a sign of weakness. I've seen it time and again as I worked with high school boys in, in, in Young Life for the last 20 years. That oftentimes when transformation starts to take root is that moment when they realize that something, someone outside of themselves has to rescue them. And they might see it as a sign of weakness, but actually it's a step forward towards wholeness. To believe the lie that we don't need to be rescued and that we can indeed rescue ourselves is to live with such significant hubris. Thinking we have everything together in need of nothing and it's ultimately a false narrative. We will end up being like Nicodemus. Remember him from the Gospel of John? 
who was someone that, was, that supposedly had all of the answers. He was one of the smartest and well-educated of his day. He seemed to have everything together. And yet, if you remember from John 3, he sneaks out at night to meet with Jesus because he had this sneaking suspicion that he was missing something. I think deep down, everyone who thinks that they have no need of saving or being rescued have the same question as Nicodemus. What if I'm missing something? What if I actually do need to be rescued? The second major reason that I think that that, that can derail our journey of being rescued is when we fall prey to the illusion that someone or something is the, is the thing that will save us. When we live our lives in such a way that says to our spouse, our kids, our family, will you save me? Because we will end up crippling ourselves and those people that we long to do for us what only Jesus can do himself. I know for me in my own life, this has, has come to bear in two major areas, in my marriage and also in my ministry with Young Life, that sometimes I have lived in such a way, in an unhealthy way, where, where, where I have said to either Emily or to my work with Young Life, can you rescue me? Can you rescue me from my own insecurity? Can you rescue me from all of my shame? Will you save me from my past? Will you save me from my wounds? Will you rescue me from the sadness, please? We can do it with our careers, jobs, success, and money. We will ask these things to save us. Please, someone, something, save me from this. And we could do this really well in the church as well. Because we can say, Jesus will rescue me, and so will my kids. Jesus will rescue me, and so will my wife. Jesus will rescue me, and so will my career. And so will money, and so will success. No person and no thing has the power to save us. But neither does Jesus plus something or someone else have the power to save us either. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who can rescue us. The third thing that I think can derail our journey of rescue is when our saving doesn't match up with what we think we should be saved from. Maybe we get to the point of recognizing that someone outside of ourselves needs to rescue us, and maybe we also realize that no person or thing could save us. So we turn to Jesus to save us, only to be disappointed because the way in which he saves us does not match up with how we think that we should be saved. This was the case with the disciples as well as those who were shouting, Hosanna. They all wanted Jesus to save them, but they had a very specific idea of what that should look like. Paul describes the way in which Jesus chose to save us, i.e. the cross, with using words like foolishness and scandalous. In fact, one of the biggest hurdles for many of the earliest Jesus followers was that uh, was the idea of a, mess- a Messiah suffering on a criminal, a criminal death on a Roman cross. This doesn't seem right. Or perhaps our definition of Jesus saving is, is doing something he ends up not doing. 
we end up questioning Jesus as those who walked with him when they said, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Jesus, if you would have been here earlier, my brother would not have died. Jesus has saved us, and he will save us. But there are still those moments along this journey when we will cry out and say, why did you not save me from this? Why did you not save me from this great loss? Why can't you save me from this unbearable pain? And I don't have the answers to those questions. But I do know that we can be faithful people who say simultaneously, Jesus, you have rescued me, but why, O oh Lord, have you still not rescued me from this? Both can exist together. And this Messiah can deal both with our cry of rescue and with our lament of things that have yet to be rescued. The good news is that the triumphal road to Jerusalem has enough room for both shouts of Hosanna and shouts of lament. This road has enough room for people who say, save us, and for the people who say, where are you? Why are you not saving me from this? Friends, the laundry list of things that you and I need to be saved from, all of them find their way back to the ultimate enemy of all of creation, death itself. And yet, even that ultimate enemy had to bow the knee to this Messiah. Even death itself was taken on in full force by this Messiah, and it was defeated. So much so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, where, O oh death, is your sting? And when we are in those moments of lamenting things that Jesus has not saved us from, the one who has rescued us from and defeated our biggest enemy, that is the one who is with us, even in the midst of our lamenting. So I just have a few questions I want to ask us. Do you know that you need to be rescued by someone outside of yourself? Do you want to be rescued, or do you want to continue to swim upstream? What do you need to be rescued from this morning? To what or to whom are you going in hopes that they will rescue you? Missio Dei Church, I know that we are all in our own way this morning, crying out, save me. But know that your shouts of Hosanna are not falling on deaf ears. Jesus the Messiah hears you. And he is the one who faced the ultimate cause of everything we must be rescued from, death itself. 
And even that great enemy was not powerful enough to overthrow the reign of this Messiah. Death tried to bring the darkness of evening on the creation. But because of Jesus, the light and life has come. The light and life of new morning came, and the evening was no more. The light and the life has come. It is coming, and it will continue to come. But friends, may we be a people who are found living lives of freedom in the bright sunshine of this new morning. Amen? Let's pray. We cry, Hosanna to the Son of David this morning. Rescue us, Lord. We turn to you as the only source of hope to be rescued. And we know, Lord, that we have had moments of believing that we don't need to be rescued or moments of trying to find rescue in other places or other people. But Lord, we turn to you this morning and say, save us. Rescue us, Lord. We cling to you. And I pray for those in this room who are suffering with unbearable pain and loss. Who are asking the question, why did you not save me from this? Be near to us in those moments, Lord. Hold us tight. But we need the rescue from you, Lord. The one true Messiah. And as we journey together through this holy week, may you remind us of what you have rescued us from, what you are rescuing us from now, And may you invite us into new areas of our lives to be rescued and redeemed. Because you are the one who has brought life and light into new creation. So I pray, Lord, that we would trust you in new and powerful ways this holy week. And that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in our lives and wherever you place us. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, we're going we're gonna to prepare for communion. Uh, if we can have a couple of folks from the leadership team hand out the sacraments. When, uh, when we're ready, you'll want you'll to peel the wafer out of the top and then open the, and then open the juice to take the juice. Um, so when we're ready, I'll read the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians, and then I'll pray, and then we can take the bread and the juice together. The words of the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup 
after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we both grieve that Jesus had to die and we celebrate his resurrection, Father, as we take this communion. Father, we thank you that you have provided Jesus as our rescuer. We pray, God, that you would invite us into the comfort of your love and your grace, God, and that we would participate with you in what you have in store for humanity and the lives of the people in our lives. Um, we thank you, Father, that you had a solution and that you rescued us. We particularly pray, Father, at the opportunities for this coming week that we're going to have to invite people to know Jesus. I uh, pray you'd give us those opportunities and that we'd be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. His body and his blood broken and spilled for us until he comes. <laughs>